Hello and welcome to PropCast, the leading property podcast from Blackstock Consulting. I'm Anna Beketov, an account manager at Blackstock, and today we're delighted to be chatting to some of the most successful women in the built environment. Since retiring from her role as CEO at the British Property Federation, Liz Peace, CBE, has advised listed house builders, housing associations, the government property unit, and chairs the Old Oak and Parks Development Corporation, billed as the Canary Wharf of West London. Liz also founded Diversity Network Real Estate Balance, which campaigns for diversity and inclusion in the sector. Professor Sadie Morgan, OBE, is the founding director of Sterling Prize winning architect DRMM, whose focus is specifically on sustainability and socially useful architecture. Sadie was recently announced as Female Architectural Leader of the Year at the BD Awards. Emma Carriaga is on the Executive Committee of British Land and heads up the Canada Water Development Project. Emma is a non-executive director of Asura PLC, as well as a non-executive director of Teddy London. She's also held development and land managing roles at Landsec, Barrett and Cress Nicholson. So today we're going to be exploring two main themes. How has the built environment evolved over the past 10 years in terms of equality and diversity? And how have these changes been reflected, or not, in our towns and cities? To what extent do today's built environments reflect current political trends and ideas? And vice versa, how can the towns and cities that we create help us form better ideologies and ultimately lead to a better and more equal society? So let's start by asking you, Liz. Um, You've worked in the property industry since 2002 and were at BPF for 12 years. Um, I think when we chatted, you said that you're one of the very few women, especially among the presidents and CEOs. Um, would you say there have been any significant changes to this over the past 10 to 20 years? Well, um, I came from a, a, a very male-dominated industry, defence. doesn't get more male than that. And I walked into the property industry and thought, oh, wow, here's one that is just as male-dominated as, <laughs> as defence. So back in 2002, it really was, you know, seriously a very, very male uh, male preserve. I think we've made huge strides over the last 20, nearly 20 years. I think it is far, far better now uh, than it was. Interesting who you've got around this table. Mm-hmm. Probably wouldn't have found these people 20 years ago, or me. Um, so yes, it, it has got better, but it doesn't mean we've, we've cracked it. Yeah. You know, I think there is, still, uh, there is still a seriously big challenge. You look at a lot of companies. There aren't enough women at the executive layer. All this stuff about putting women on boards, that's fine, but you can solve that problem by hiring in non-execs and suddenly your numbers look okay. The real key is to get people up to the executive level of companies, and that's what the organisation Real Estate Balance is about, of which, by the way, I was one of the founder members, not the founder. I wouldn't want to upset my colleagues, <laughs> but but that's what we're interested in, how you actually develop a pipeline of, of really good women who are there when the promotions come to the executive level and just by dint of the statistics if you've got half of half of the pool is female half of your executive committee will end up as female so that's what we're particularly interested in doing but we're not there yet um, and so Emma we've mentioned that you head up the Canada Water Development um, but you've also delivered lots of other central London developments I think you mentioned that your job was a bit like playing some city when we chatted um, what do you think would be the outcomes of a more diverse planning profession um, and fundamentally what are some of the things that developers and policymakers can do to be more inclusive well I did say my job's a bit like SimCity although my kids told me that that's a bit hold hats and <laughs> I should say my job's a bit like Minecraft right so more relatable that's probably a better description than than SimCity but but it is like that it's a huge responsibility I think to bring forward a new piece of London 
and and my hope is that you know in 10 12 years time when when I'm looking back over what will be a completed development that it will feel very different from from what we know about big regeneration schemes to to date and I suppose why I say that is I I feel very strongly that we can do better as an industry Um, and I have a privilege but also quite a big responsibility I think to affect that and to make that happen Uh, I don't do it on my own I've got an amazing team working with me and for me um, and I spend a lot of time thinking and handpicking who that team are both internally but but externally as well so that we have a group of people around the table who have the vision, the aspiration, and, you know, frankly, the cojones to kind of make it happen, um, but but who are also quite different in their makeup. And so it's the people that make places fantastic. You know, Sadie and her field design beautiful buildings and somebody builds beautiful buildings, but it starts with, with a vision and, and a brief. And you need people with different perspectives, I think, to, to be able to make that happen. Uh, the planning profession, I think, is is better than some, actually, in terms of its gender diversity. I spend a lot of time working with Southwark Council in, in my day job. And only last week spent a week on a, on a call with them as they were starting to envisage their policies around women's safety off the back of the, the tragic case of, of Sarah Everard. Um, and they were all women and they didn't struggle to pull together a team of colleagues who were all female to, to have that d- debate. So I think in local authorities, I think they're actually pretty much there, certainly in, in my experience. Private practice, private planning practice, much less so. I did a planning degree and I think I'm the the only one or one of two out of my year who ended up in private practice or working for for developers so we're by no means there but I think the the local authorities certainly seem to be stealing a, mm. a bit of a march yeah that that point on safety is quite interesting and obviously quite topical given everything that's happened what what are some of the things you think that the planners can do better to make cities safer for women well the debate we had last week was about um public spaces and how you create environments where people feel okay at all times of day or night to be able to walk through and part of of your development. Um, I, I'm not a design expert, but there's there's obvious interventions that people can make in terms of overlooking, in terms of where you put different uses that that create footfall and passive surveillance, if you like, and environments there that make women feel comfortable to want to be in. So um, I think there are cues, and we know, don't we, all of us, when we feel safe and when we don't mm. feel safe. And, and I think there's there's a lot that design can do to, um, to, to make women feel, you know, more comfortable to walk through our cities um, at, at all times of the night. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, and Sadie, architecture, um, probably out of all of the professions, is, is perhaps the most diverse areas of the built environment. Um, but I think a lot of the ideas um, created by architects might not necessarily um, make it through if, if they're not funded, so they might be left on the cutting room floor. Um, so while there's more female architects, say, than investment managers, um, if there is a severe lack of diversity among the investors who decide what's funded, will that be reflected in the buildings that eventually get built? 
Absolutely. I love the fact. I mean, I, th- I still think there's there's some way to go. And I think if you look at investment, if, if you compare us to investment managers, then you know, we're, we're definitely going to do better. But we still, I, I think 70 or 80% of uh, registered architects are still male. So I think that, um, you know, it's changing. Uh, I know that uh, in terms of university places, you know, we have many, many more women. And I think it's a good, it's pretty much 50-50 mix there. But, um, you know, we do, I think, as Liz said, have to make sure that we encourage women to stay and to and and to rise through the ranks and and to direct a level to exact level because that is mm. where I think we we do struggle um I I'd pick up on Emma's point about the brief making you're absolutely right if you want if you want an inclusive design you have to start with a brief you have to start mm. right at the beginning and you have to start with communicating with those people who will be affected by your development so I think communication and consultation is absolutely key to making a, a, a inclusive sustainable um, design and so we need to find better ways I think of making uh, the method rather than the outcome inclusive and that means not talking in architecture speak it means mm. in, you know making things much more accessible at all stages of the process uh, otherwise you will inevitably leave people out and you can't just expect a designer to come in at the end and somehow make something or design something that becomes inclusive if the process hasn't started that way yeah we were talking earlier about the exhibition that's currently on at the Barbican on reimagining uh, spaces with matrix feminist design cooperatives, which was a female-led um, multiracial architecture practice set up as a cooperative in 1981. Um, and the exhibition explores who architecture is designed for and who is excluded from certain spaces. Um, I've got, there's a nice quote here from the FT article, which I'll just read out. Um, for some people, the built environment is largely unproblematic, hardly noticed. They fit smoothly with its social, spatial and functional arrangements. But for others, the experience is often one of misfitting, of having to operate in spaces and situations that are uncomfortable, awkward and often discriminatory. So, um, Sadie, what are your thoughts on whether building design can exclude people um, and can a building, for example, be sexist? Well, buildings can certainly exclude people. I mean, I think if you're in a wheelchair, that's only too obvious. And and there are also, you know, when you talk about exclusion, you can also talk about um, making people feel uncomfortable and uh, and, you know, by making it very clear if you have social housing and 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 for sale for in, instance you know to have a kind of difference if you're tenure blind you have a you know you you have an environment that's much you know that's much more kind of inclusive and I, that, so there are sort of simple ways of making sure that you are thoughtful um about uh, you know not not just whether or not you're able-bodied or you know but uh, other ways in which you can other ways in which you can discriminate um we were chatting earlier about can buildings be sexist they can certainly be masculine (laughs) (laughs) but um i think that you know um it's all about who who and how you use space and um you know we have to say that predominantly you know women are you know spend a lot more time in the kitchen their their care I don't actually I'm a terrible cook (laughs) so (laughs) um, I'm kept well out of the kitchen delivery all the way uh, that's not um that's not through necessarily through choice I think it's just uh, my partner wants to stay alive but um (laughs) but I think that in, in all seriousness we 
it, it we we have to sort of change the social makeup and we have to think about ways in which we encourage um much more kind of div, um, diversity of thought uh, and um who, who is it that is going to be in the kitchen is 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 really more relevant than where the kitchen is or or how it's designed yeah Okay, so in terms of um, the planning system, so our current planning system was put into place in 1947, so obviously um, a long time ago, and a lot has changed since then, so we can safely say it was designed for a whole different breed of civilization, um, one fixated by the automobile and, and the dream of colour TV. Um, so Emma, what role does the planning system have to play in encouraging diversity and inclusion in our built environments? think it's got a massive role to play but I think it has an issue in that it's it's very prescriptive about what you build and says very little about how you spend time enjoying it and managing it and and for me coming up with a system that was as focused in how people move across spaces how open spaces are maintained you know that that would be a system that asked the right questions to enable buildings to be designed that that anticipated that. So I think we feel very pushed and focused on the front end of the development process. And 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 I say that particularly, I guess, because you know I work on projects which have quite a long tail to them, uh, and they're certainly assets that we will be owning and managing for for the long term. And so I'd love a system which was much more interested in how you encourage people to enjoy public open spaces. Um, Mm. And you asked questions during consultation exercises that were focused on on how how we could improve people's well-being rather than where we where we often end up is is a is a very focused conversation about mass or brick finishes Mm. or uh you know it not not irrelevant stuff by any means but I think they they get an undue focus and attention and drive certain decisions and outcomes rather than perhaps what we should all be be thinking about so I don't think we have a system that encourages the right questions to be asked and maybe that has an impact on the way in which our places end up Mm. being being delivered yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, I think it's a really interesting point. I'm not a planner and I'm not an architect. So, you know, as a, as a sort of lay person who enjoys the, the outcome of those two processes, it's always struck me that we're far too focused on the individual buildings. I remember when I went, I actually had a visit to Dubai some years ago, you know, all these extraordinary pieces of architecture. And that absolutely epitomises how nobody has thought about how they fit together, even through, through the sort of business of putting a monorail mm. virtually sort of through their front doors I mean it was quite absurd but but I don't think we think enough about the place around buildings and of course the irony is you know if you're walking down a street or walking around an area you're not walking with your neck craned and looking up at the top of the building and the fabulous architectural feature or whatever it is you're actually looking at what's around you excuse me and how it actually feels and and interacts and I mean that's what I'd really like to think we try and achieve at, at Old Oak I mean we're we're not there yet. Um, we've had all manner of sort of interesting challenges there, but we really wanted to create something that that feels like a place with the right sort of that the right sort of space joining up 
the buildings where people are actually going to live. And, and I guess just one other point to get in, because I'm sure you'll get to it, people may be starting now to sort of doubt some of, the, some of the things we've been doing for the last 10, 20 years in the light of the COVID experience. And, you yeah, know, I get asked all the time, what about density? I'm interested in, in Sadie, uh, Sadie and Emma's views on that. Are we going to have to try and think of ways of making people feel rather less hemmed in because, you know, what the pandemic has shown is the, the, the challenges of people, you know, sitting in a 22nd floor, one bedroom flat when they don't have uh, the sort of access to facilities and open space um, that, that, you know, those of us who were lucky enough to spend the pandemic out in the country, you know, that's, that's very different. And I appreciate it's early days, but I think, you know, we do have to, to think about that in the context of what society is going to want. Yeah. And what, what do you think that looks like? Does that look like sort of cities that are more spread out or kind of this 15 minute city idea? Well, I, I mean, I, I, again, I'm a lay person on, on these. So, you know, I can only sort of form a view about what I read. I mean, I think this 15 minute city idea is quite interesting. Funnily enough, it's not a million miles to what, uh, from what John Prescott came up with back in the early noughties. And he called it sustainable communities. And, and, you know, I was I was born and brought up in a sustainable community. It was called Bourneville. Uh, you know, and everything was within a cycle ride of where you lived. Um, so, so actually, it's not a new idea. No, it's kind it's, of it's pre-industrial. Just that we've, it's just that, well, I mean, that was, you know, in response to a large industrial conglomerate that thought it would be very convenient to have all its workers living around it, which indeed it was, and it formed a, a, a very good community. So, so I think this idea of, of communities, you know, is important. And, and, you know, I know Emma and what she's done in the development world has, has also been focused very much on that. You don't just build disassociated blocks of whatever, be it residential offices uh, or whatever. You, you try and create a proper community. Mm. It's interesting you say that because one of the, um, you know, we set up the Quality of Life Foundation last year, and the first thing we did was to do a nationwide piece of research you know to Emma's point you know when asking the wrong questions you know do people want to live in a you know pitched roof or flat roof well actually why aren't we asking them what actually improves their quality of life and building that into our you know regeneration schemes and our development so we did a nationwide piece of research and um, the outcome was a uh, we was uh, a, a number of things came to the fore and we put together a framework which talks about those things so sense of control everybody needs to you know if you feel like you have a sense of control and you are embedded within the decisions that are made then you tend to you know it, it's it's only natural but you, you, know, you kind of tend to be in it for the long run um uh, freedom of movement access to nature um fun and wonder we often you know sort of forget about that and uh, he- you know health and well-being making sure that we we create um uh, healthy homes and a sense of belonging and actually throughout the pandemic it was the the research that came back was it, it mattered what your community it was all about community it was mm. all about those routine things that you do being able to go to the shop being able to see you know p- people or understanding that you were part of something um and and integrated and and belonged to um to to a not just the place where you lived but but were connected to the people around you and i okay we were through we were going through a pandemic we were all locked down but i think that 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 is something that we have now reconnected with Mm, and um and i think is incredibly important and you know i was brought up in a commune my life was very different you know and that was all about 
you know how can we live differently and how can we support and look after each other and allow us the freedoms the minute you do that you have so much more freedom particularly as a mother mm-hmm. you know or you know and and those who tend to be you know less empowered have much more power because they are supported and helped in doing in in you know in their everyday lives yeah. so i think that there's a lot to be said for that and yeah. um you know if we can reconnect back to those those things that really matter i think we'll move forward in a much more positive way i'm I'm conscious you wanted to you wanted to talk about diversity in the industry and i think it's interesting sort of tying what what sadie and i have just been saying back into the sort of people you get working in the industry and and i don't think it's just it isn't just a gender issue i think it's a a dni issue overall and and particularly around the whole sort of social mobility a social mix of our industry and and that i think actually is something we need to look at almost as seriously yeah. as we look at yeah. women and ethnicity yeah. and, and and disability Be, because part of the sort of tradition of our industry is this old school sort of corduroy trousers you know tweedy jacket with the leather patches on dad went to some um, oxford brooks or <laughs> reading or something like that and and actually looking at how we can get a really diverse group of people working in the property industry mm. or in the built in sorry, property industry is a bad term because it's millions <laughs> yeah. of different industries but working in and around the built environment then you'll start to understand a lot better about actually what your ultimate end users want the end users are society at large so you know your industry needs to draw mm. from society at large yeah no definitely well i'm very i'm very keen to ask how you think we might be able to do that but but i'm also interested in this point um about creating communities and the quality of life foundation that you mentioned how does architecture facilitate the creation of those communities well i think that you you know when it comes to how you build you just need to you need to make sure that you build things that people want to where people want to live and you know in in places that facilitate um you know how how people want to live and and those things that do improve your quality of life you know access to nature it's an obvious one but you know as as liz pointed out so many people were were um unable to actually access green space if you're not lucky enough to have a you know if you're in the inner city if you're not lucky enough to have a balcony or a roof terrace and you know that awful moment when they locked the parks you know because too many people were getting i mean it was like madness um and and you know so so i think that making sure you have healthy homes making sure that we we design and build homes that not only respond to the climate crisis but actually are adaptable have enough space for people to live in the way that they want to you know if we are going to spend more time at home we have to create homes that are much more adaptable and able to um kind of manage those different types of um uh you know those those different ways in which we in in which we want to live and the you know building buildings building infrastructure takes time and there was always be a lag Mm. and so I think that you know things aren't going to change immediately um because there's but but I think if we start you know as Emma said to think much more about the long term 
to you know to have post-occupancy reviews for example one of the big things we're doing at the quality of life foundation is saying it's not just good enough to consult and ask people at the beginning of the process you're never going to learn what works unless you unless you ask them afterwards and that's all about being you know as emma says in for the long term because yeah. if you if you have that stewardship and you have that um and you are invested in in the long term then you start to learn what matters you know we never we don't always get it right we might think we're really good at what we do but inevitably things change or things don't work Mm. and we will never change unless we ask and I think as an industry we're moving towards those types of conversations but I can't emphasize enough how important it is to really go back to a building five ten years after to really understand what it is that has you know really worked and those things that have failed uh, and and think much and be much lighter on our feet about how we can adapt quickly enough because the process takes so long i i would wholeheartedly agree with that and i i think just to to push that a bit further and and link it perhaps to working environments mm. rather than living your your point is well made about how long yeah. it takes to realize these buildings and i wonder and in fact we are we are uh, developing a, a modular campus uh, at Canada also, which is all about getting workspaces and education spaces up and running. Mm. And, and in our experience, it's about nine months from agreeing the brief to actually having people move in. And, and why we're doing that is to try and give, you know, to your point, Sadie, some opportunity for people to reimagine what their workspace might look like to try different configurations, which if they work, great. But if they don't work, allow you to really interrogate and reposition those modules to try different concepts. And and that sort of experience of of piloting and, and robustly, I think, shifting the deck chairs around offices to allow us to try different forms it is important, actually. None of us know what the future of work is anybody that tells you that post-covid is it's a load of bloody nonsense really we don't know and and actually the occupiers or the customers know even less than than we do so so actually why not create an environment for them where they can try out new configurations with Mm. their staff think about different densities think about the purpose for which they want to come and, and spend time with with their colleagues and actually, when in time they're ready to move into a permanent building, we'll have plenty, you know, for them to, to pick from. But but the, the spirit, I suppose, of, of modular, I think, is an interesting space for us coming off the back of COVID. It's highly, you know, contentious when you talk about people living in, in modular housing. But for working, I think it's got a lot of validity. And that loose form construct that Sadie mm. was talking about, allowing you to kind of change things mm. around if they're not working, yeah. much harder to do in big, expensive, permanent buildings, much easier and more dynamic and frankly cheaper in a in a modular sense, which, you know, I think is is something to watch out for. Mm. Well, it's that sense of flexibility, isn't it, really? It's like you can, you can plan for the future. Who knows when the next pandemic yeah. will be? or or whatever something else (laughs) Mm -hmm. so it's those spaces that can be flexible and can be used for in different ways um so we've talked about how social values can be reflected in the architecture that's created but what about the other way around so um can architecture and planning have the ability to encourage better or fairer social values can you think of an example of, of a place that maybe encourages that sort of diversity and inclusion 
good example, maybe. South Bank. Mm. You know, I would have thought there's a building where, you know, in, in some ways it's sort of back to our previous conversation about allowing stuff to happen without being too prescriptive about how it's, it's organised. South Bank somewhere where it welcomes everybody um, whether you're looking to see a performance or or just looking mm. at, at somewhere to to hang out while kids play in the fountains outside yeah. you know I think those those sort of public buildings mm. it's not a public building but it but it has a sort of a civic nature to it is somewhere that's successful but I'm conscious and, it, that's, and it's very open isn't it you can it wander is. in and wander wander around it yeah uh, I mean p- place, places that have got sort of walls and gates and ticket offices and yeah. well, mind you spontaneity does seem to have disappeared slightly at the moment but I mean generally speaking I mean I, I always remember years ago talking to Terry Farrell and, and he said he thought they should open up the Tower of London as, as the city of London's village green so people could actually walk through it I thought <laughs> It's such a fabulous idea, actually, because, you know, it's just a bastion at the moment and you have to pay to get in, you know. Mm. So the more you can make places open and exclusive. Yeah. And, and, and I do tend to think there is some architecture and, and Sadie might want to challenge me on this, but there's some that actually make places like a citadel. You know, if I look at the bullring in Birmingham, you approach mm. it from one side, and, and my goodness, you know, there's this great sort of towering wall of aluminium discs, which may be architecturally very interesting, but where do you get in? Mm. <laughs> where, where's the sort of permeability of the place yeah. and the feeling that it's actually welcoming, certainly from, from, yeah. from one or two sides of it? I think that, I mean, that plays to your point earlier, isn't it? The way you're saying no, few people look up. You know, mm. I do, <laughs> but but actually, it it is that ground space. It is ha- having yeah. that activation, having easy wayfinding. You know, being able to mm. uh, permeate a space, yeah. Yeah. I think, is incredibly important. And you know that that is why the South Bank is so successful, mm-hmm. as you say, because you you can just walk in. It doesn't mm. matter, or or um, you know, it's, it's incredibly accessible uh, in terms of uh, you know wheelchair users, for example. I think so. It's it. it has that sort of sense of freedom sense of spontaneity um Mm. or or, you know if it's if you're you don't have to have planned (laughs) to to go there and I think uh you know I I mean Liz you make very good point about the moment at the moment we do have to do those things but there will will there will be a time where we are desperate to get back to um not having our lives completely regimented and being able to have that kind of sense of expression and freedom and yeah drop in where we like I mean I'm just also trying to think of sort of places that that might encourage that from a work perspective because I'm, I'm involved with the University of Cambridge now and we're we're very keen to to develop areas where um, you can encourage cross fertilization of ideas so you have different companies you have parts of the the academic body um, and they meet over coffee and you know the big great idea for the future comes out of a, a chance meeting before an ex- between somebody from a commercial organization and a PhD or a postdoc from the university and and actually encouraging collaborative spaces like that in the in the work environment is really is I think really important and and it sometimes it happens naturally but but sometimes you really have to work at it because because inadvertently you create you create barriers which which actually stop the interaction that you Mm. you actually want and and that's where we have to look to clever designers to to help us get that right how would we do that sort of we've got breakout spaces 
parks. Well, I, I you know, I think it, 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 I mean, you make a really good point, Liz, which is, and I'm sure Emma will pick up on this, is that you can't, you know, there is this big move now to sort of cooperative working to, you know, to making sure that you have different scales of businesses. You, it, it tends to feel like it's startup, but I think we need to be a bit more mature about, mm. you know, it's not just startups that need to be together. Actually, you know, startups need bigger organizations who are, who are more mature. So to your point, you know, you need that richness uh, in and diversity in order to make those conversations interesting um, but you do have to if you if you have a situation where everybody is encouraged to eat for example not at their desks but uh, you know they they have to go out and go to the canteen at a certain time you know then you it there's a I think it's a bit, a bit of sort of soft um, <laughs> <laughs> encouragement mm, yeah. um, because I think that you know I we, we were talking about it earlier lockdown has we've all become very comfortable sitting at home and um, I mean not all of us but I think we, we have to be encouraged sometimes to remake those social connections and to and to get away from our desk and to say hello or how do you do or you know so I, I think we have to we have to help those those interactions mm. we can't we don't we can't just make a canteen and say oh everyone's going to meet up and you know share ideas and have a coffee together because that's not necessarily going to happen so I think it's you have to curate those moments mm. and I I don't know Emma if that's something that you know you're looking to do as well as the spaces but kind of helping by curating moments that that that's at least start that conversation you know you can yeah. take people can take it or leave it thereafter but some people find it a bit more difficult to just rock up and say hi <laughs> well we're calling it the wednesday afternoon bell oh, yeah. there you go oh, okay. see you're way ahead so, of me <laughs> if you think back to when we were all at school or for those that went to uni wednesday afternoon was always pens down sport sport afternoon, afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> that's right and why is it when you get to the office that you don't do that anymore um so so for anybody looking to move or to relocate their business to canada water they can be part of the wednesday afternoon bell movement where they can it's not compulsory but but there will be opportunities mm -hmm. for businesses to mingle yeah uh, not necessarily just with your own colleagues but but across this new town center and and meet some someone new go and do something worthwhile you know if if you know sport's not your thing then maybe a bit of volunteering might be and and start to facilitate is the word we're we're tending to to find uh, lands quite well facilitate people doing stuff together and and you know whether or not it'll be a metaphorical bell or or not <laughs> who knows and you know we'll get smart about it with with apps and you know opportunities for people mm. to connect digitally to to make friends and and find out what's going on but i i agree with sadie i think you know people are living in cities is tough mm. you know and if you're a young person living in a city you haven't got that connection and that network necessarily and work can be a big part of your life and i think yeah. we've seen that in our business during covid actually the ones that are really really desperate to come back are are the people for whom you know work yeah. is is a big part so mm. so how you create that experience for people when they come to work i think needs a bit of a nudge and 
for us it's it's the bell <laughs> sounds like an amazing idea i think we should have that at black stock <laughs> um, yeah i'm gonna go and get a bell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well there's gonna be a, there's gonna be a bell I'm gonna, now I'm three o'clock every wednesday afternoon yeah yeah um you mentioned technology there do you think that that's an important tool for being able to create more diverse and inclusive spaces and obviously create communities and facilitate meetings i think it has its place you know i think um you know, if you'd said to me 10 years ago, you know, there's going to be an app that's going to tell you where you can go for lunch and, you know, be like searching for a unicorn, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, but but I do think people have adapted. I mean, look at us all over the last year. I'd never used Microsoft Teams and I consider myself quite, you know, IT savvy. So we can all change. We can all adapt. I think as long as you don't let the tech drive you, mm-hmm. um, it's there to enable and it's there to fill in the the gaps I suppose where you know where man and female power I suppose is is limited particularly in in you know managing big bits of city so it's got its place but but I I think as Sadie said what we've all learned over the last year is kind of having friends and connections mm. and mm. networks and physical real life know, interaction experiences will, will never replace the tech yeah. what do you think Oh, I I agree entirely. I mean, I I was thinking as you asked that question, you know, tech is great, but it is a double-edged a double-edged sword it allows you not to talk to people I mean we'd started to see that you know I, I remember in one of my offices actually at the BPF we had a small office we were all on one floor but people were still sending emails to each other instead instead of actually getting up and going and talking to somebody perch on the edge of the desk and ask somebody how they are or what they did at the weekend or or, or something and and then get onto your your business your business thing and I mean that that's the thing that you miss with teams it's quite false trying to have those sort of chats at the beginning beginning of your beginning of your team's yeah. meeting so so yeah talk. so let's be let's be sensible about you know you, you do need some human interaction and and I think you know we, I, I'm sure we will change the way we work but I quite agree nobody knows exactly how that's going to change at the moment and I hope we'll take the best of the best of both worlds yeah. the tech and, and non-tech world yeah let's hope so um so I think we've touched upon the fact that there have been lots of positive changes um, within the property industry in recent years, um, but perhaps sort of while property and built environment industries are still dominated by certain groups, um, we might not see the changes that we need to see in terms of democratising our towns and cities um, and and ensuring that they're wholly inclusive. Um, So let's talk about how we can um, attract a more diverse range of people to the property industry. So I think, Liz, we talked about how there's lots of women at sort of a lower level, but they sort of disappear as you get further up to the top. Um, So perhaps to, to sum up, if you could all give a suggestion of what we can do to encourage diversity and equality in the property industry and built environment. Right. Well, well, I'm, I'm going to sort of go back to the, the, the principal tenet of what Real Estate Balance was about. Um, there are already an awful lot of organisations that are helping. We, we started with gender, so I'll stick to that for the moment. But, you know, are helping young women build the confidence, build the experience, get to know people. We, we, we decided we didn't want to interfere in that. And that's great. Let them all get on with that. We wanted to start by changing the other end, which is the, the bosses, the top, and, and actually getting the 
the CEOs and the C-suite to think about what they needed to do in their organisations to make it more welcoming for all these people who were these young folk who were out networking and learning and wanted opportunities. And, and actually that I think is, is where we've been really successful because we've managed to attract the attention of pretty much all the major CEOs in our in our industry. They all participate regularly in round tables. We talk to them about what they're doing to change culture. Now, some of them, you know, sign up to our commitments and don't do a huge amount about it. We, we did actually say at one of our breakfasts recently, you do need to tell your staff you signed up to our 10 commitments because they'll then want to see that you're actually living by them. Some of them thought that was a bit, oh yeah, must do that. You know. yeah. um, but, but I do think you won't change the culture of an organisation unless you change the senior management. And, and that's why talking about gender equality, it's no good just talking to women. You've got to talk to all the male CEOs we've still got in the industry. Getting better, we've got a lot more female CEOs. I look forward to when Emma's going to be female CEO. Um, uh, but you know, we, we, we've got to talk to the people who are there in the C-suite at the moment. Yeah. And if those are the blokes, that's who we're talking to, to make sure they're going to drive the change from the top. Yeah, absolutely. Emma? I think I'd pick up on the point earlier made about social mobility. Uh, I spent uh, a fabulous five years uh, sitting on the board of Pathways to Property, whose mission in life was to make sure that we had young people going to study real estate who were deliberately from different groups. So to be eligible to be on the Pathways to Property summer school, you're not allowed to go to private school, you, you can't have a relative who's got any connection with real estate. And there's some quite strict criteria around which groups they actively recruit people from. And they are given a fantastic week-long immersive summer school experience where the industry really generously, I think, spends time with this group of people who are then encouraged to take up real estate degree courses, where there is sponsorship and financial support given to this group. And it's working. You know, we have now people working in, in the industry. We had Bradley at, at uh, British Land. There's a fabulous um, woman at Savills, there's one I think also at Colliers. They all came through the Pathways to Property program, um, and and I think that there's no one thing that's going to fix, you know, what what we all know needs to happen. And real estate balance is doing a great job at their end of the market, but I think at the at the young person's end, gender agnostic, there there has got to be more time and effort spent and I think Pathways is a is a good example of of an initiative that's starting to to deliver but but it's taken a, mm. a lot of time and we're we're nowhere where we should be but but for me you know some more focus from the industry on on social mobility I think yeah. it's got to be a a push yeah and what about in architecture Sadie Exactly the same. And uh, I was just thinking when Liz said, oh, that's my point. And then Emma said, oh, that was, the, that was my backup number B point. <laughs> um, we, I, you know, you can make change. Uh, I think the procurement needs to change. I think that if you I, more actively uh, make it clear that if you're a client and you are shortlisting for practices, then you would hope that at least half have uh, women on at director level. You know, we have 50-50 at direct. We have 60% women in our practice and we have 50-50 at board level, uh, director level. And, and that way, you know, things won't change unless 
unless people don't you know are are i think quickly enough unless that level of encouragement is put forward and that that's that's the same for also all, all, all members of society and, and if we're talking about diversity i think that that's important and 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 there is big recognition of that but that it took black lives matter to mm. you know and you know to sort of highlight that and i think now if you're a young bane practice you are so fed up of being phoned up <laughs> so can you come on you know so i think that there's a there's a balance to be struck and one that is that is um not patronizing but is truly kind of positive and inclusive um to emma's point i i so desperately believe that we have to not just pick people who have had a privileged background and um you know very early on we refused for example to take any interns without paying them now you, you might think that that why would why would why wouldn't you but there are plenty of people who are very happy and willing to come uh, without you know for the experience without being paid and you know on the face of it that's rather nice thing you know if you're running a practice and you know but actually it's just not good enough because what that means is only those people who can afford to do that will come so you have to pay people properly and you have to pay everybody properly and you have to we have to think as an industry how we encourage interns or apprentices and uh, I know that there are lots of ways in which education is thinking about changing in order to make that happen but it just isn't happening quickly enough Mm. so I think we have to be a bit more proactive than just hoping it's going to happen yeah just one one other point on that because you mentioned black lives matter and i think you know that caused a lot of people in the industry to sort of gulp a bit and think well okay we've been tackling the gender issue Mm. we're quite good at lgbt disability well not that good at disability but you know we think about it but Mm. the 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 whole black lives matter i think put ethnicity absolutely uh, in the spotlight and and i think that one's a really difficult one for the industry to crack because i think that goes right back to uh, getting people people in their schools and communities and their mums and dads and the people they listen to to understand that there are some interesting careers in the built environment that could be open to everybody Uh, and and, you know these communities don't tend to think that you know so so you've got to get in you know culturally really really Mm. early it's almost too late waiting to university because they won't have gone to university or be doing the right subjects you know you've got to get into the the communities to show them that the built environment can be a massively diverse and inclusive place and you know there's at least what probably 50 different things you could be in the built environment it's it's not about being a chartered surveyor and going (laughs) to to reading there's so many other other ways you can you can actually get you can actually get into the industry. I, I met a, a, a fantastic black guy who who was involved. I think he was with one of the, the big age, a smaller agent. That's right. And he'd said he had no idea what, what property was, what the chartered surveying profession was, until he was working for the post uh, post office in a you know part time student job. And he was cycling past Great George Street and he saw the flag. RICS. Oh, I wonder what that is. And he looked it up and and I think he was a geography student actually. Um, and and eventually got into the property industry but you know nobody anywhere at age 15 16 mm. 17 had sort of said think about what you could do to f- help form our built environment and that's what we're we're not good enough at yet yeah. and we're not good enough as a, a a collection of lots of different industries in actually promoting that built environment yeah 
So there's, there's lots of amazing points there of, of things that we can do and hopefully we can mm. all take those on board. But Especially people like, like you. <laughs> See, you're, you're in communications. <laughs> How the industry communicates about what we are and what yeah. we can do and absolutely. what's possible. From, mm. a, from a young age and kind yeah. of, you know, yeah. get into education early, absolutely. Back to Sin City. <laughs> or whatever. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. <laughs> amazing. Well, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to speak to you all. And I think we have some really interesting points there. Thanks for listening. I've been Anna Beketov and we've spoken to Emma Carriaga, Liz Peace and Sadie Morgan. You can listen and subscribe to Propcast on Spotify, Apple Music and any other major podcast outlets. We look forward to seeing you next time. Hold up. 